Well, we are in the book of Acts in chapter 13. And if you would, if you're able, uh, please uh, stand as we uh, read from the scriptures. Acts 13. Father, be pleased to grant that your word uh, would reach the deepest parts of who we are, that you'd overcome our resistance, you'd woo us, you'd fill us with faith and hope and love today. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and there they went They sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salmas, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Papos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making the crooked, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hands, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of his people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. 
Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose I am? I'm not he, but I told you, after me one is coming, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read in every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who have come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnessing to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it also is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And as Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has so commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. You may take your seats.
Can the West be one for Christ? Is America so secular, so pagan, with the influence of the idols of money and sex and power and false religion, in such moral decline, in such cultural chaos, that we shouldn't hope or expect uh, that the gospel will have any progress. Maybe we should just decide that the best thing we can do is hole up in our homes and our churches and hope that those walls keep the barbarians out. I don't know about you, but there are just times when a steady diet of uh, the news leaves me in a funk. Uh, I move, drift toward, well, hopelessness about the world, uh, maybe about our nation. But then I remember that uh, the West has been won before, that uh, as unlikely as it seems, an obscure carpenter who was born in the rural backwaters of an insignificant and occupied land into a family without social standing, who had no formal education, with no possessions beyond the clothes on his back, who wrote no books, established no schools, um, who had no digital platform and uh, gathered a a group of, well, unpromising followers, only to die a shameful and humiliating death. He and these followers in 300 years' time became the dominant spiritual force in the mighty Roman Empire. They shaped for centuries uh, Western civilization. And they launched a global movement that reaches today into the corner of every part of the world. It happened once, and it can happen again. And I'm cheered, and you should be too if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not, we're glad you're here. But if you're a Christ follower, you should be really cheered by what can be seen around the globe. The gospels advance. It's burning like a wildfire in many uh, places. And there are uh, many things that cheer me here in in America. There are both individuals and churches who are having a real impact. The question should be, not can the West be won, but how can the West be won again? And the book of Acts offers us great insight to this question. It's the story of the church, but it's really not so much the story of the life in the church. It's the story of the church as it carries out the mission given to it and the progress that the gospel makes. And it shows us much of what the church must do as the church if we want to impact the world and if we want to impact America with the gospel. Now, I say much, but not all, because it doesn't speak to our responsibilities as citizens. That does not belong to the church as a church. It belongs to you as an individual, as a citizen who is primarily first and foremost loyal to Christ and his heavenly kingdom. That's where your citizenship primarily lies. And it doesn't address 
uh, what it means uh, to work for the glory of God all that much. It's really not its main theme in the book of Acts. It doesn't explain to us the nature of our involvement in carrying out the cultural mandate, how it is that Christians participate in shaping culture. It just doesn't, doesn't concern itself with that. It's concerned with us, the church, as the church. And it majors on, and perhaps you heard it in the reading of Scripture, the power of the Word of God to bring transformation, hope, new life, and joy. And this morning, we'll see uh, uh, what it looks like for the church to engage in mission, and as a result, what we can expect, which is both progress and opposition. Now, uh, the outline didn't make it into your bulletin today, so here it is. For those of you who love to take notes, here's the three points. Effective mission requires a vibrant church. Effective mission requires a vibrant church. Effective mission is led by the Holy Spirit. And effective mission adopts Paul's methods. So effective mission requires a vibrant uh, church. Antioch is a vibrant community that's committed to the Lord and its mission. Now, we looked at this uh, last week at at, some length, and there's a lot of lessons here, but let me just recap by calling attention to four virtues in this church. It is a listening and a learning church. They had both teachers and prophets among them. The teachers uh, shaped and influenced among them a heart for learning. And the church listened to the prophets who enabled them to discern how to put that knowledge into practice. Knowledge without action is sterile, and action without knowledge is misdirected. This church had both of them wed together. And second, it's a generous church, both with its treasure as it rose to assist in other parts of the world with famine. They engaged in famine relief, but remarkably in giving away their best people to share the gospel, and they probably paid their travel expenses as well. They expended human capital and financial resources to advance the gospel among other people. Third, they were ready, already for spirit-directed cross-cultural ministry because they were already a cross-cultural congregation. They were attuned to the needs and sensibilities of people who were different than those in their own ethnicity. They had learned how to work together, to communicate. One group did not dominate the other. Instead, they complemented and collaborated, and they were stronger as a result. And fourth, they didn't view praying and fasting as a community as an extra or something exotic. No, the leaders especially gave themselves to this, and as a result, they were attuned to the Spirit's leading. Now, just pause for a moment and just consider There are churches here in Potomac and in Chesapeake Presbytery who have all these virtues, 
Um, there are churches in these pres- in our presbyteries, our sister churches, the ones we're most closely connected with, who are desiring and growing in these virtues. And the question is, is the Lord calling us to grow in these virtues? Perhaps to act on some knowledge that we have, but it's actually just sitting on a shelf gathering dust. Or perhaps to be generous with your human resources and to use them beyond yourself. So it's true that the early church was a low overhead operation. They didn't own a building. They didn't have to pay a mortgage. Uh, They probably uh, didn't pay anything like what you're paying your pastor. Um, And so naturally, you don't have as many resources, but just the human resources. Will you want and choose to give your pastor away to ministry beyond the congregation? Will you want that? Will you be willing that if he's with someone who's not a part of the congregation, to accept that he can't be with you in that moment? I needed to put that way because it will come with a cost. You see, will you do that? Will you choose to use some of your discretionary time not just to be with the people that are in the church, whether here at CRPC or some other uh, congregation, but will you use some of your time with people who don't yet know Christ? And will you grow into being a cross-cultural congregation? where we learn to work together, where we understand each other's cultures, not just honor each other's cultures, not dishonor their, each other's cultures, of, of course, but actually open to learn from somebody who's in a different ethnicity and culture than your own. Every culture has its blind spots. It's so easy to see them in somebody else's culture, and it's so very difficult to see them in your own just like our other faults. And will you find ways to engage in prayer and fasting? And I thank you so much that so many of you did um, uh, this weekend uh, for the meeting that took place. You see, every church needs the Spirit's direction to carry out its mission effectively. And I'm just so delighted to be a part of the PCA. I'm so proud of what Mission to the World and Mission to North America, our, our large global ministries and national ministries are doing. But so many churches flounder because they don't have that direction. It doesn't just happen. It has to be sought. The second point's this. Effective mission is led by the Holy Spirit. This is going to be the long point. Um, And it's right there in verse 4. It starts off this way, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. You see, they didn't just get their map out. They didn't have a travel uh, consultant to make their itinerary. No, the Holy Spirit was their travel consultant. And he uh, leads them to Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch and go to the port city of Cilicia, uh, which, uh, uh, from which they sailed to Cyprus, which is the land of Barnabas's birth. He knew it was an island. He knew this island. He knew the people on this island. He probably had some idea of where he might even uh, stay. Uh, and so it was an easy place for them to start. 
We might say today the Holy Spirit pitched them a softball. And they arrive in Salmas, and they go to the synagogues proclaiming the word of God, the gospel. Now, the synagogue is, at that moment, where the low-hanging fruit for the gospel was, because God had spent centuries uh, preparing uh, his ancient people for the message that their long-awaited king had come. And so, naturally, there would be people there, prepared people, who would respond uh, to the gospel. There's other reasons Paul's there, but that's, that's the primary reason they start there. And then Luke goes on in verse 6. It's really easy to, to miss this. He says, when they'd gone through the whole island. Well, you see, he's just summarizing weeks, probably months of activity just with a brush because he wants to focus just on one individual here, just one little uh, moment out of this months of ministry. He focuses on a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He's not an illusionist. He's somebody who's in touch with a spiritual reality that's hostile to God. He was an advisor uh, to the Roman governor, uh, Sergius Paulus. That's what proconsul means. It sounds perhaps like it's a legal term, but it's, it's, he's the governor. And we know about him and his family, actually, uh, from the annals of the Roman Empire. He's, he's an actual historical figure. This is not a fairy tale. Um, and this governor heard about Paul and Barnabas, and he wants to hear them in person. After all, they're the most interesting thing that's happened on the island in some time. But Bar-Jesus, uh, 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 whose other name is Elimaeus, uh, felt very threatened by this, and he tries to interfere. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looks at him and says, you are misnamed. You are not the son of salvation. You are the son of the devil. You are the enemy of everything that's right. And immediately a mist descends upon him, and he's blind. And he has to grope around. And the governor, Luke tells us, comes to faith. He's astonished by the teaching of the Lord. Now, it's not to say that the sign that he saw didn't have any bearing on it, but Luke is underscoring here the power of the word of God. It is what changed him, not the miracle that took place at those moments. Now, what are we to learn from this? Well, as the gospel advances, there will be spiritual opposition, not merely human opposition. Spiritual warfare will occur. There are dark spiritual powers operating behind the, the opposition of Bar-Jesus. And this warfare can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Satan seeks to destroy humanity to take them away from God, from life, uh, from trusting dependence on God. And this spiritual opposition continues today. Jesus warns us in the parable, the sower, that Satan seeks to steal uh, the good seed of God's word out of hearts who hear the gospel. Satan blinds people to the good news. And Satan will seek to disrupt the unity of the church when it moves out in mission seeking to reach others. Why is that? Well, churches who uh, are seeking to obey Christ's call to mission are a threat 
to the kingdom of darkness. They're a threat to his church. And churches that are on the sidelines really aren't much of a threat of all. So he doesn't really need to spend a lot of resources on them. Just how will we stand in the face of his attacks? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes about this extensively, and I just can mention a couple of things. We must find our strength to stand in the Lord. It's not in us. We need to put on the whole armor of God. And this includes having deep trust in the power of the Word of God. This Word is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation. It's the sword of the Spirit, and it neutralizes Satan's opposition to the governor hearing the Word of God. And and it's probably we should understand that though Luke doesn't tell us what happens to this man, Bar-Jesus, that he's being given by the power of the Word the opportunity to repent. His darkness is a symbol of his spiritual uh, blindness. And we must give ourselves to prayer. That's how Paul ends in Ephesians 6. We are simply no match for the power of the evil one. And we must find our strength and our protection and our courage in him. So we should be able to see that there's some abiding truths here that that, uh, don't apply uniquely uh, to the church in the first century that belong to us, this, this truth of spiritual opposition and the power of the word. But there are differences too. None of us could expect to go into the synagogue and be invited to give a sermon. The synagogue probably doesn't contain a lot of low-hanging fruit anymore for the gospel. We don't live in a place where the gospel's never touched people, where there are no churches, where people don't have an opinion about Christianity. We are not in a frontier situation, but we can be utterly confident in the power of the word of God, the gospel, to change people. And there are a number of ways you can tell whether, in fact, you're confident in the power of the word of God. And one of the ways is your prayers. Are you praying for your neighbors? You know, some people find it actually helpful to map out some of the houses around their neighborhood. We've done this repeatedly when we move to a new place. And we put our house in the middle, and then we write down the names and the family members of the people around us. Of course, we have to go learn them, <laughs> uh, meet, these, meet these people. And one of the best ways is right now, it's spring. Uh, it's, is it spring by the clock? Yes, it is by the clock. So it may not feel a lot like it today, but it's spring, and people are outdoors. And you know what? You can walk through your neighborhood and pray for people. And when you do that, as you're praying, you just are open to having a conversation with people. And if you have children or a dog, people will be drawn to you like a magnet. (laughs) They want to see your children. They want to pet uh, your dog. And and you can meet people like that, and you can pray uh, before you meet them and afterwards. You'd be surprised. Now, whole neighborhoods have been changed when a couple of people have prayer walked their neighborhood and begun to see God open doors. Another is, is to be prepared to share the gospel, to get equipped. It's hard to do it if you're not equipped. You'll miss those opportunities if you're not equipped. So the next thing that Luke tells us in this story is that the Holy Spirit leads Paul and Barnabas to Perga and Pisidian Antioch. 
Now, they set sail from Paphos to the port city of Perga, and John Mark leaves them there. That'll be important later because we're not told here why he leaves, but it will be an issue of controversy later in the book of Acts, and it will result in a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Perga and Pisidian Antioch are located in uh, modern-day Turkey, but it was ancient uh, Galatia. And Paul tells us in the letter of the Galatians that he fell ill during his visit. He may have contracted a form of malaria, and he may have gone uh, down from the coast up to Pisidian Antioch seeking cooler temperature. Because as the pharmacists in our midst will tell you, that Tylenol and aspirin were not yet available in the pharmacies. And so he needed help to cool uh, the temperature that his body was experiencing as it fought off uh, malaria. And uh, when they arrive, once again, they go into the synagogue. And it was the custom. The synagogue leader had determined that they were qualified to speak. After all, Paul had been trained by one of the most famous rabbis uh, in the era, and Paul preaches the gospel. And there's a summary of the sermon. This is not the whole sermon you have here. Paul undoubtedly went on longer than I will uh, today. And, but this, it can be summarized just quickly. It's this way. He begins with how God has been active in human history, choosing a, the people of Israel for himself. And then he recounts a few highlights. He may have said much more. He's establishing a rapport with his audiences. One Jew to a fellow Jew who's intimately familiar with their shared history. And then he says how their history led to the request for a king, and God gave them one named Saul, and then he gave them a good one named David. And from David's line, the Messiah, Jesus, was born. And then Paul calls for a response to the gospel, uh, which offers both forgiveness of sins, which they probably were resistant to hear about. They probably didn't see themselves as in need of sin. And so he, he mentioned John the Baptist, who uh, made this uh, point for years. And uh, then uh, he says that what Christ offers is a standing with God that you cannot attain by obedience to the law. And then he announces that they face a choice of life and death. And the service concludes, and people say, come back, we want to hear more, which is, I hope, will be the result at the end of this. Um, and some have uh, responded to the gospel and put their trust in Jesus. A week passes, and almost the entire city shows up. They must have moved outside the synagogue for this crowd. And the Jews were jealous, and they stirred up people, and uh, they jeered at them. If you've ever seen somebody preach the gospel uh, outside on a college campus, which was common in my day at Maryland, the people, scoffers, people would say all kinds of things even throw rocks. But Paul and Barnabas are not intimidated. Uh, they summon a response, and then they say, if you're not going to respond, we'll go to some people who are open to hear the message of the gospel, the Gentiles, as God has determined. The Gentiles hear this, and they're filled with joy. Well, what can we learn from these events? Well, very quickly, the word of God, the gospel, is going to get a mixed response. Some for some, it will bring joy in life, and for other people, not so much. And it's in keeping with the purpose of God in election. Luke tells us, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed 
to eternal life believe. That's verse 48. God's appointment of some to eternal life should produce both humility and confidence in us. Humility because our salvation rests on God's initiative. Without his initiative, there would be no plan of salvation, no provision of a Savior, and no capacity in us to see our need for a Savior or to respond to the offer of salvation. You see, God opens our eyes to the reality of who we are, the beauty of his mercy and grace, and he draws us to Christ. And we should be humbled by this, both because of the fact that God elects us and uh, because, well, we understand just this much about the mystery of his electing love. It's a little bit, maybe this illustration uh, from one of my children would be helpful. Uh, Sometime after uh, my middle daughter had one of her boys, she commented that she said she was utterly surprised by how much she loved this boy, even though she and her husband uh, planned to have this child. She just found herself overwhelmed with love. Now, of course, this little boy had done nothing. He hadn't hadn't awakened her love uh, by his gifts and care and affirmation of her. Nothing like that at all. Nor was it what she anticipated receiving from from him and and often now does and wait till uh, they get a bit older. Uh, She will feel completely unappreciated probably. (laughs) But, But her love is undiminished. And see, this is what God reveals about his love. His love that's set on people before time is not because of anything in us or anything we have done or will do. It's simply that he's chosen to love us. And here that that truth is expressed with this word appointed. And this should deeply humble us because we have no grounds to boast before God, none whatsoever. It shouldn't be misunderstood, though, and often is, and if you're here and this is something you've never heard before, it shouldn't be taken to mean that we're passive, that somehow we're robots without responsible involvement. No, we're given the capacity to respond, a new heart, a new mind, a new will, and, but we, it's we ourselves who choose Christ, who submit to him, who trust in him, who receive him, who rest on him by exercising faith. That God is sovereign in choosing and that we are responsible in our response is a gospel mystery. But it's clearly affirmed in the events before us and the scriptures testify to it repeatedly. Now, The gospel will always get a mixed response, and it shouldn't catch us off guard. We shouldn't expect that everybody that hears the message is going to respond. Uh, The Gentiles believe, but some of the Jews reject the message, and they brought condemnation on themselves in their unbelief. That's why uh, Paul and and Barnabas uh, do what they would have found very surprising, which Jews did when they passed through Gentile territory. They shook off the dust to their feet. The Jews did this to get rid of the potential uncleanness uh, that might carry on the dust as they walk through Gentile territory. But what Paul and Barnabas are saying is, we'll have nothing to do with your unbelief. That's what they're saying. 
So your response to the gospel is of the highest importance. It's a life or death matter. And that's true for every person in our lives. Their response to the gospel is a life and death matter. And it ought to, it ought to move us. If our hearts are really soft, we'll be moved by this. We won't just treat it like a fact. It's God's appointment of some that should fill us with confidence about sharing our faith because God has people he's prepared to hear the gospel. There are people out there who, if you share the gospel with them, some of them will actually respond to the gospel. In our sharing of the uh, gospel, as we uh, figure out how to do it in a way that's appropriate and sensitive in its timing and terms that a person uh, can understand and relate to, it will be met with success. Not all the time, but some of the time. And, of course, we can't tell. You can't look at a person and say, I know this person's going to respond. Some people who seem least likely humanly to respond, respond, and others who we might think uh, would uh, uh, resist. But this is why we are commanded to sow the gospel seed widely in every field and in every corner of the field in our lives with the people we live, work, and play with. Do you have a personal plan to sow? All of you are invited by the Lord Jesus to be sowers, and we as a church are called to be farmers. Are you farming? You need a plan. It isn't just going to happen. It's not going to happen because you heard this sermon. You're going to have to go do something uh, with this. Paul and Barnabas face stubborn unbelief. Does that mean, well, we should just, when people aren't responsive immediately, just cut them off and say, I'm done with you? No, we shouldn't. We need to be really slow to do that. His Jewish audience... Uh, uh, had the truth of the gospel. And it's very rare that we meet somebody who has all that truth packaged up so well. And so we ought to be very slow to conclude somebody can't respond to the gospel. There is a place to warn people, but it ought to be with tears. It ought to be with great sorrow in our hearts. There should never, never be this sort of triumphal, you know, I'm done with you kind of thing. The last thing I want to say very briefly is, can the West be one again? Well, yes. Effective mission adopts Paul's methods. Effective mission rests on Paul's uh, methods. Now, a lot could be said about it, but I, I want to just close by, by really dwelling on just a couple of things very, very briefly. Paul's method includes a robust gospel. It's a gospel that keeps together the gravity of human responsibility and God's sovereign actions. It it points out that our behavior, our thoughts, our attitudes oppose God and his ways and have offended him, and we need forgiveness, and that we can never be good enough be received uh, and be in a right relationship with God. No amount of of good living and, and kind deeds 
what can ever cover uh, what's lacking in us. The gospel, the robust gospel, is rooted in the historical actions that God has taken that give us a hope for the future that actually changes everything now. It's a hope that rests on what God has done in the past for a future that awaits us, that makes everything now different. You see, the gospel sets forth a hope and calls for a response. It's a message of hope, and part of the challenge is understanding not only the times we live in, but the people we live in, to communicate in terms about hope they understand. You see, you can't live without hope. Hope's a powerful emotion that's essential for life. And the gospel offers a a better future, the hope of a better future, the same way vacation does for somebody who's worked all year or a student. The summer brings the hope of the freedom from study or the way springtime brings us hope for the renewal of of the beauty around us uh, from a harsh winter. The way finding love does after rejection. You see, hope holds out to us something worth waiting for, something worth working toward. And the hope that Christianity offers rests on Christ's resurrection. That's the hope of a better world, of a world where evil and violence and hatred and sickness and death are no more, where these no longer cut short life, where they no longer take from us people that we love, a world filled with joy and not tears, of peace and not uh, conflict, unmarred by broken relationships and tension and conflict and injustice. It's a hope that Christianity announces. It's a hope that's made possible because it makes clear how it is we can be reconciled. The one who is fashioning the future and who has given the answer to our offenses and rebellion. He, was, he died in our place for our rebellion, and he's been raised so that we might have life and joy. Do you have this hope? This is such good news, and it demands a response. It calls for a response. If you're here and... You're not sure what it is I'm saying today. <laughs> and then talk to me or one of us, you know, about, about this message. It's rich, and I've only touched on some of its high points. But if you understand this message and don't have this hope, would you take it today? It's there. It's yours. Will you, will you reach out and take it as your own? Let's pray. Father, thank you that the world is not hopeless, that there's a glorious uh, future awaits. And grant, Lord, that uh, your church all over the globe and we ourselves would give ourselves uh, to this uh, combined work of proclaiming the word of God, 
the hope of the nations, the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.